Good evening, everybody. Hi. Howdy. So you've already talked to me once, but I'm back. I, uh, I wanted to, to start off tonight by, uh, we're, we're doing our, our series on the, the seven churches, and, and it usually starts off kind of the same, and so I had kind of my own little personal one. So for he who is wearing the blue sweater and is wearing the brown shoes, says to the angels that are at Lake Arok campus, uh, I know your works. And I, I'm just really grateful for all of you that are here tonight and, and for those of us who aren't here tonight. Don't know if I say it enough, but I love you all. And it's an honor to be able to pastor here and to, to serve with you. And I wanted you all to know that, that you're very special. And I'm excited to continue to see what God is going to do through this campus and through all of the things that we want to do to glorify God and to make his name great. So thank you for, for joining us in that, for partnering with us and, and seeking to do that in this community. So approximately 100 years ago, there was a race going on. There were likely a lot of people around the world that were engaged with it, but it really came down to two teams. People mostly thought there was just two teams involved, and they were both trying to do something that, as far as we know, at the time, had never, ever been done before. On one side, there was a guy named Samuel Pierpont Langley. He led this team. He was an astronomer, a physicist, an inventor, a mathematician, and a pioneer in his field. He was so renowned, in fact, he was given a $50,000 grant from the Defense Department, the United States government, so this is quite a lot of money, 120 years ago, and this was supposed to be used to fund his project, and he pulled together some of the best and brightest minds in order to accomplish his goal and use the finest materials. The New York Times even followed him around, waiting to see when he would succeed. And many, many people knew about him and his team, and they were rooting for his success. The other team was far less known. So in many people's eyes, there's actually only one team. There is Langley's team. This other team, uh, as far as we know, no one on it had even a college education. No one funded their project, and their team of friends and neighbors worked out of their small business, small town, bicycle shop. Anyone want to take a guess at this team? I'll give you another hint. They were brothers. The Wright brothers, exactly. The Wright brothers. Very well done. Yes, and that was their team. So their goal was flight, and they won. They won that race. Why did they win? Both teams were highly motivated. They had excellent work ethics. There was bright minds on both sides, and they had a common goal. And in Langley's case, they had far superior resources, at least on the face of it, on the surface. So what did the Wright brothers have that the Langley team did not? We're actually not going to answer that question tonight, really. Uh, But we are continuing our series in the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. A couple weeks ago, I said that there was one left, but there's two. Uh, One thing you're going to notice is that they all, all the churches, as we read through these letters, they all have the same pastor, the, the same shepherd, and that is Jesus. All of these churches have the same spirit. 
all of the things that you would think would make a difference in the lives of the church are even. They're all in the same playing field. They differed in things like finances and influence, but the most important things were the same. Why then the difference? Why the difference between the churches? Why do some churches receive commendation and other churches receive condemnation or some mix of it? What sets churches like the one we're going to be reading about today, one that is truly positive example, what sets this church apart from the other ones? The answer to that question, I think, has direct implications for us as the church in the 21st century, doesn't it? How can we as a church be more like the church we're going to read about today, the church at Philadelphia, and less like churches at Ephesus or the one we're going to talk about next week, Laodicea? We're going to start to answer that question in just a second when we dive into the text. But first, I wanted just to give us a little bit of a context. So as we read, we can picture the setting a little bit, okay? So Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia in in modern-day Turkey, was set about 40 kilometers southeast of Sardis. And it was an important fortified city that acted in many ways as a gateway to the east. For the Hellenists, or the the people that were trying to, to spread the Greek way of life, It acted as a missionary city, but not the kind of mission that you probably think about if you're sitting in a church. The mission that they were involved in was to spread the language and the culture of the Greek people. That was what Hellenists were, Hellenization, the spreading of the Greek language and culture. As you read through the New Testament, you can see the idea of one being either a Greek or a non-Greek. But for your information, there's far more nationalities than than just two, right? It's not just Greeks and one, it's Greeks and everybody else. That was the idea. There's this idea that to be Greek or to be part of the Greek culture was far superior than everything else. So it was Greeks and everybody else. There was a lot of industry in this city worthy, or sorry, there's a lot of industry that supported the city and gave many considerable wealth and power. For all accounts, it was a very beautiful city. So let's read. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. It'll also be up on the screen there. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of, those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I don't know about you, when I read something like that, when I read something 
positive, where there's uh, some inspiration behind it. I want to know what makes that, that person or that thing go. I want to know what sets them apart, what makes them special. I want to know how they do what they do. And so this reminds us of our question, what sets churches like Philadelphia apart from these other churches? And the, the short answer, as we read through the text, is, is obedience to Jesus. That's the, the, the hot, fast and ready answer. A, new, a more nuanced answer would be patient endurance, or as I want to frame it this evening, spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. They have put their big boy and big girl pants on as it pertains to their faith. Now, we're going to walk back through the text and we're going to see how that bears out. So our passage begins much like the other ones. It's addressed to the angel at the church of Philadelphia, but the description of Jesus is unique. Uh, He writes, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So here what Jesus is doing is he's taking, pulling from uh, Isaiah 22. And this is from the story involving a gentleman by the name of Eliakim, Eliakim. And what happened was he was given the key as the prime minister to the kingdom of Israel for the king of Israel. He was given this temporary control of the kingdom. And so by doing this, by pointing to this, what Jesus is doing is pointing to his superior and eternal authority over a greater kingdom, a greater kingdom. Essentially, this description tells us that Jesus is the only and true Messiah. Because of that, he is the one who's going to decide who participates in the kingdom of God. In other words, that salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And we can see that as we read this, that he's pleased. Verse 8, I know your works, he says. Behold, I've set before you an open door which nobody is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So just like the city that they're in, we can see that they are known for their witness. Except in this, they're they're not peddling language and culture. Instead, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the saving grace of Jesus. And Jesus is saying that they have a green light. He's saying that everything is, is opened up for him. He's opened this door, not only to salvation for themselves, but to spread the good news. Remember, this church being in modern day Turkey in, in Asia was made up primarily of Gentiles. So Gentiles are non-ethnic, they're, not, they're non-Jewish folk. Verse nine tells us they're facing significant opposition though from that community. If we were to read there, we see that he's talking about the synagogue of Satan and talking about the people there who think that they're Israel, think that they are Jewish, but they're actually not. They're pushing back against them. And the problem is that they denied that Jesus was the true Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah to come and they're saying that Jesus is not the one, that these ones are, are that the church in Philadelphia are worshiping a false Messiah. They're saying that they are the true church. And so Jesus is saying he is the true one. He is the holy one. So this, in an ironic twist, what Jesus is doing is he's taking a verse that that was in the Old Testament that was supposed to be 
about ethnic Israel, that people were going to come and bow down before them. And he's ascribing it now to this Gentile church at Philadelphia. He's, he's turning it on its head. He's saying, you guys are actually the true church. You're the ones that I love. He says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. See, Jesus is saying that he holds the keys to the church and the true church are those who obey him. Doesn't matter about ethnicity or, or who, what the lineage is, it's who follows him. And he shows this by pointing out that their little power Whatever this means as far as, or it could be their lack of political power, uh, a lack of economic power, could be just their numbers in size, that it's no problem at all. Just like the Wright brothers were little in power in comparison to Langley and his team, it didn't matter. In fact, as it pertains to the Philadelphia church, this may have actually been their greatest strength. Honestly, if, and this is confusing for people, we, we don't look at things like this, do we? If this per, we, we think of power, we think of economic power, we think of might in those sense, and it wasn't any different then. Honestly, if, if you want to confuse people, especially guys, you, you want to change the packaging. Though you ladies, you might be able to identify with this a little bit. The other day I went shopping, or sorry, Sarah was out shopping and she was going to go pick up some, some hair product for me. And she goes in and I described what I wanted and she found this one, but it didn't quite look the same. And so she took a picture and sent it to me and said, is this the one? And it looked completely different than the one that I, I normally get, but it said the same sort of stuff. So I was like, I don't know if this is the right one. I mean, it says some of the same stuff, but the packaging is different. So why would they change? It, it can't possibly be the same one. It looks different. It's not what I'm expecting. See, I don't know what it is, but I get fixated on what something looks like and change is, is tough. So she took it up to the front where she and the girl behind the counter had an eye-rolling session, lovingly, <laughs> about how guys do this all the time. All the time when packages change. This can't possibly be the same thing. See, we get used to thinking of things in a certain way. They look a certain way, so much so that when we're told something is the same but looks different, we don't even believe it. That's why we still have churches like Laodicea, we're going to learn about next week, that claim that they are rich and therefore powerful, but are not. See, the teaching that Jesus is alluding to about the powerful aren't quite what they see. This goes back to his previous ministry and travels straight through. Jesus is steady in his teaching. See, everyone thought that they knew what powerful looked like, what being connected to God looked like. Blessed was good. If, if things were going good, if you were rich, if you, had, if you had economic power, if you had political clout, if you had influence, then you were blessed. God was smiling down on you. And this was straight across the board. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's taking everything and flipping it upside down. And nobody could figure out what was going on. See, Philadelphia is what true power looks like. They had either those who bowed to the emperor and emperor worship coming from one side, or from the other side, they had people saying that Jesus was the false messiah, 
on the other. It was almost like a little pincer movement coming in on them, but they held firm. They didn't deny his name. In fact, they kept going. They kept going out in public. It's just, it's just confusing for us, just as it may have been confusing for them, thinking of themselves as powerful. See, re- recently, I had a, a good conversation with somebody, that, and they gave me, because what, what we're talking about, in a, in a sense, is meekness. But no, no guy wants to, to be called meek, because it just has a, 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 such a non-tough guy connotation to it, I think, in our culture. But this person defined meekness for me in a way that has kind of changed my life, and that's power under control. Power under control. And that, that sounds a lot like spiritual maturity to me. And because of that, they've not denied Jesus' name. There's one more thing that needs to be mentioned about uh, in verse nine before we go on. So he, he's talking about the synagogue of Satan and he goes through and he says that uh, I need you to know that I have, or everyone needs to know that I've loved you, church at Philadelphia. So first thing we need to see here is that God loves the world, right? So uh, God sent his son, or he so loved the world that he sent his son. So what's the significance of him saying that he specifically loves this church? God especially loves obedience. People that, that hear what he says, hears the word, but not as just a hearer of the word, but a doer of it. He wants people to be his stewards of love and mercy and grace and justice here on earth. And this is a theme that runs straight through the Bible. If you're to go back, there's a, a billion verses, but here's three. Second Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams, which was, it was a good thing. Proverbs 21, 3, the Lord is more pleased when what we do is right and just than when we offer him sacrifices. And finally, Jesus, then in Matthew 12, 7, talking to the Pharisees, he says, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. See, the very reason why ethnic Israel was in the predicament they were in is because they were ignoring this. The church in Philadelphia embraced it. They were actually doing what God wanted them to do. And so verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. See, I think this verse is the one that's going to unlock our question. You get it? We were talking about keys before and now we're we're talking about unlocking. It's a theme. Yeah, you see? That was planned. No, you couldn't see that coming. See, yeah, I don't know, I'm sneaky. So when we read through this, you'll notice that Jesus had nothing but good things to say. There's only two churches in these letters. There's Smyrna and then there's Philadelphia. That Jesus has nothing but good things to say about this church. Maybe they were a small number, maybe they had a little power, but they not only persevered, they kept faithful to the mission of spreading the gospel. How? Because considering the other churches, right, those other five, that it's not all positive, it's clearly not that easy to do. What sets this church apart? Well, they were a spiritually mature church. 
What does it mean to be a spiritually mature church? Before we get to that, I want to read something from a book that's impacted me pretty significantly uh, recently. It's called Outrageous Love and Transforming Power by Terry Wardle. And he talks about spiritual maturity in this. And he writes, many Christians, including local church leaders, moi, think that being a mature Christian is relegated to believing the right things about Jesus and the faith, behaving like Jesus in daily living, and serving as Jesus did within the church and world. As such, a great deal of attention is given to knowing what to believe, how to behave properly, and where to get appropriately involved in Christian service. Sermons are preached, classes are taught, books are written, and ministries are formed to move people towards greater levels of understanding, action, and service. Unfortunately, with this paradigm in place, maturity is measured by a person's movement toward this inappropriately defined end. Now, he goes on to say that these things that he's talking about, they're not bad things. They're just not what we're or should be talking about. He says, Christian maturity is not measured by what a person believes, how sheer he behaves, or the level of involvement in ministry. What then is the true measure of Christian maturity? It's to become like Jesus. It's to look like Jesus. Can those things that he's talking about help get us there? Of course, but they are not the thing. They are not the thing. We, de- we define it by its end, not the means. And so through this book, he goes out and he lays out eight characteristics that Jesus showed during his time of ministry prior to his death and resurrection. These include things like identifying as God's son. So for us, as a child of God, intimacy with the father, valuing community and engaging consistently with a Christian community, being empowered by the spirit, ministering to people in significant ways. If you've been at Central for any length of time, I hope that some of these things sound a little bit familiar to you because they're basically the same things that we value. If you go on our website and go under values, almost everything I've just said right there is in our values. There are things that we, Central Community Church, want to be or, or want to value. But do we as the individuals who make up this church community, do we value these same things? Do we take these values and intentionally seek to strengthen them in our own lives? We're not really talking about them for fun. There's a storm coming. As, as they say, I mean, heck, there's, there's storms coming all the time in life. Things are constantly bashing up against us. Things that we get caught up in. Friend or family member gets cancer. Someone loses a baby. Someone fails a test at school. Someone makes some really dumb choices. Someone dies. Someone cuts you off in traffic right? It's all coming. It's all, and it's not going to stop. Moreover, this text is telling us that something really tough, worse than getting cut off in traffic, is going to happen. Something 
that it will simultaneously act as judgment on those who don't believe in Jesus and something that will be purifying and strengthening for those that do. Are you ready for that? Can your faith handle that? Let's look at it like this. How do we know if someone is mature? Just regular maturity. How can, how can we tell? We can push their buttons, can't we? It's kind of, you know, a little fun. Poke at them, see, see how they react, test them, or just watch when they're in a tough situation. Watch when their button, buttons get pushed. If you're, are you dating someone now, maybe? Thinking about dating someone? Want to see what they're made of? If they're marriage material, put them to the test. See, see how they react in tough situations. It's better to find out before than after. Walk through something tough with them. See how they do. Serve alongside them in difficult situations. When Sarah and I first met, we were in Poland, and, and one of the things we did, uh, among many, was we served at a kid's camp. Now, when we think of, of kids' camp here, we think of like Stillwood or Quanos or Imidine or uh, Camp Bob, something pretty nice, right? This was Polish camp in the boondocks with kids who were, we can just say, behaviorally challenged, to put it nicely. And they didn't speak a word of English, except bad words. They knew lots of those ones. It was nine days, but each day lasted, it started at 5 a.m. and went to 1 a.m. If you were lucky. Some people, Sarah got to stay up all night a couple of times because she could speak some Polish. She was, did I mention all this was in Polish? She was basically our interpreter, which is amazing. She had, she was kind of our everything while we were there. She'd gone through it before. She was prepared. She rocked it. It was tough, man. Like, it was tough. After it was over, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could walk through Armageddon with this girl, and not only would she not bat an eye, she'd look really good while doing it. <laughs> Me, on the other hand, did, did I mention she's graceful? She's got a lot of grace. I'm still a work in progress. Jesus is giving the church at Philly the keys to everything. He's saying, you, you guys can handle everything. They have an open door for salvation and witness. It's like a blank check. This church is killing it. They're doing amazing. They're not feeding. There's this, I, I, we're going to talk about milk and meat. There's this image, if you're, you're not too familiar with the Bible, uh, talking about milk and meat is if, if, you're, if a baby, babies drink milk. Adults eat solid food. They're not feeding on milk anymore. They're sitting at the big boy and big girl table and they're ready to feast. This is, this is a grown church. And this is all implied in and what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Well, he's, oh, we're reading through this. He's not pointing out any flaws. Did Jesus get shy all of a sudden? And, oh, I'm just not gonna, you know, I don't wanna hurt their feelings or something like that. Read the next letter, right? The Laodicea, Jesus gets raw. It's, it's not like, he's not gotten shy in his later years, the only thing that he's saying that this church needs to do is keep going. That's, that's his call to them. That's his challenge to them. He's saying they kept his word 
on patient endurance up to that point, but it needs to continue. They need to persevere. They're not past the finishing line or the finish line. The Christian life isn't or to obey. The Christian life of obedience to Jesus isn't a, a, a checkbox, one and done kind of thing. Oh, I've achieved sanctification, right? I, I've achieved light, like holiness. I can just go fishing and, and, it, and it's all good. It, it doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a lifestyle. And so that's why these values that we say are so important are so important because they help keep us on track. They give us guidelines and things to aspire to and to work on consistently as all this other stuff is going to be trying to pull us in every other direction. Is it tough? Well, yeah. I mean, some situations are tougher than others, right? Being a Christian in somewhere like Lake Arok or Agassiz or Promontory or, or Chilliwack is different than being a Coptic Christian in the hands of ISIS. It's different. It's debatable on which is tougher. But the problem that most of us are going to face if we're listening to this is something akin to something that Paul was facing in Romans 7. And that's dealing with and having to fight through his own sinfulness. Often it's an inside job, right? Usually our biggest enemy is our own mind. And, and keeping going is basically impossible when faced with this kind of constant opposition and lacking in spiritual maturity. And this includes our emotions and our mental states too, by the way. See, we get caught up in this whole persecution, like physical persecution is a bad thing. It is a bad thing. But being a Christian in spite of ourselves is hard. It's hard work. We look at the world around us and we don't want to miss out on the fun or, or the different things that the people are doing. Like these guys in Philadelphia, this church in Philadelphia would have been going through the exact same thing, having the exact same challenges. It's, it, it's not like they're not people. I think sometimes... Often we can dehumanize the folks in the Bible, right? We read through it. I know I can do this. It's like they're not even people. They're like robots. Well, this person is missing this part, so they must be struggling in, in this area. As if they're not real or if they're going through the same things. But they were human beings just like us, susceptible to all the same junk that we are, yet they were doing really, really well. Were they perfect? No, they're not Jesus. It's not a bunch of Jesuses. But they were doing amazing. And so what is going to carry us through? Well, it's Christ-like maturity, imitating the Lord Jesus. He stayed true to his father every step of the way. He obeyed, he loved, he showered people with grace. He wore justice and mercy like necklaces and bracelets, just showing them off to everybody who came near. But we're, not, we're not Jesus, right? So it, it's, it's going to be tough, I think, a lot of us know that this culture that the Philadelphian church was in, it was saturated with Greek and Roman mythology. And one hero of theirs was a guy named Homer. Anybody remember a book that Homer wrote? Iliad? What's the other one? Odyssey. There we go. The Odyssey. And this book, it chronicles a man named Odysseus who's returning home after, bonus points, which war? So, did I... What, what war is Odysseus coming home from? Huge, famous Greek war. It is the Trojan. Look at this. I know. See, well, you, see, you, get, you get the points in, in saying it was not right, but I'll give it to you anyway. 
See, this was a long, epic journey that Odysseus was on. Ten years he was on this, full of crazy encounters, creatures like the sirens. The sirens, they were calling to Odysseus from this island, trying to captivate and enslave his mind with their enchanting song. Odysseus, he's the hero of the story by all accounts. He's a good man. And he was even wise enough to know his limitations. And to solve the problem that he has with the sirens, he asks to be tied to the mast of a ship so that he won't succumb to the siren's captivating song and steer his ship off course forever. See, there's a lesson here, whether it was intended or not. Are you distracted in life? Or probably worse yet, are you threatened by something that is seeking to pull you, sorry, pardon me, pull you off course pull you off the path that Jesus has you walking? Do you feel like you have weak resolve? The solution, according to Homer, deny freedom. Abdicate responsibility. Tap out. As I said, he was, Odysseus was wise enough to know his limitations and we need to be too. But Jesus has a better way and that's patient endurance. Or put another way, spiritual maturity. Prepare for the dark times ahead. Know that these situations are going to come up and be trying to pull you away, pull you off of the path and be ready for it. Maybe you're in dark times right now. It's not too late to look to Jesus for help. Grow closer to him. Eat milk. Eat meat, not milk. Declare Jesus. Don't deny Jesus. This will enable anybody to walk through anything. God's grace is that powerful. You, in you, have the strength to walk through anything by God's grace. Anything. Anything. See, Philly, they kept Jesus' word about patient endurance. And notice it's not some cheat code or hack that they're doing. They were just listening to and obeying what Jesus has called us all to. And that's life in obedience to him. Period. It's it's really just that simple. However we want to look at it, as we read through this, the the point is this. and, And that's judgment is coming and only patient endurance founded in life in God will keep one from experiencing the brunt of it. I can't, I, I, it's, I'm probably repeating myself, but I can't stress this enough. This isn't going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen by accident. Just like with physical fitness, you don't accidentally get more fit. Trust me. I, I've tried that and it didn't work. You grow in spiritual maturity through intentional action. That's what, uh, it's what Eugene Peterson calls the long obedience in the same direction. This is discipleship. This is spiritual disciplines. This is seeking God's face intentionality. So why is this important? What's at stake? Verse 11, I am coming soon, says Jesus. But this is good news. Normally when he says this, I'm coming soon, it's like, oh no, right? Like it's, it's not good news for the church, but this time it's actually good news. He's not coming in judgment, but second coming in power to set all things right. It's not good news for some people, but it's good news for this church. So what do they need to do until then, Jesus? Because he's saying, I'm coming soon, I'm not coming now. He says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast to what you have. What do they have? 
He says, verse eight, you have kept my word and not denied my name. That is the most important thing as a church that we can do. According to Jesus, there, there's forces that are gonna be constantly coming at us, right? And this can get wearisome. The church at Philadelphia, though, they seem to be sticking together and we as a church need to be sticking together as well. This isn't time for lone rangering it. See, the spiritually sick and hurting, they get picked off by predators if they aren't protected by the strong. If you consider yourself a strong believer, you have a responsibility to those who, to those who aren't. And you can look at this in Romans 15 or Galatians 6 or Philippians 2. The call, the command is there. We're to be looking out for one another. And if you're not well spiritually, this isn't the time to go and try and find yourself. This is the time to hunker down where you're loved, where it's safe. Verse 12, good part. The better part, best part. To the one who conquers, so the one who, who, who does this, who stays in community and fulfills what Jesus is calling us to do, I will make him, he says, a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is a ceiling that can never be broken. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, God is building something. And he wants the best materials. He's building his temple. And the rad thing is that his grace has made a way for every person who is saved by his name and follows him to be there, to be a part of that building, to be part of that community, to be a pillar in that temple. Amen? Doesn't that sound amazing? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, today, and, and thank you for the opportunity that we have to be a part of, of, a, of a vibrant church community that seeks your glory. Thank you for the people here who, who haven't forgotten your name, who proclaim it, and Lord, as we, as we think about our community and we think about those of us who want nothing more than to see your name shouted across this valley, off the hills, help us to be able to do that. For those of us that are struggling right now, Lord, we pray that they will stick close where they're loved. And that together, we can rally around one another and be a strong community for your sake, for your glory. Help us look to the Philadelphian church for inspiration. We pray in your name. Amen.